according to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Turn to John chapter 9 this morning as we get started. John chapter 9. This is our second week in the uh, man born blind, am I correct? I tried to start two weeks ago and you wouldn't let me. So last week we got a start of the man born blind. Covered two points of study. And we'll be ready to move on to lesson point three in the outline here this morning. Before we begin, uh, oh, by the way, did everybody look at their email yesterday? I sent out a note about a phone call from Andrew Dolan. So uh, remind me to uh, speak to some folks. And then tonight I'll announce it again. And uh, then I'll compile the final list to send names and addresses to Andrew Dolan, that young man is headed for Germany, of all places, so we're thankful for that. All right, let's take time for silent prayer. Make sure we're under the filling of the Holy Spirit, prepared to handle truth, shall we pray? Mighty Father, we do thank you for the truth of your word and the privilege and blessing that we have to assemble together. Father, we thank you for your faithfulness in our lives day by day, moment by moment. If we are faithless, you remain faithful, for you cannot deny yourself. Father, we thank you for this time together. We ask for diligence and concentration, and we thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, Man Born Blind, Episode 5, in the last Judean and Prean ministry of Jesus. The contents of John chapter 9, verses 1 through 41. That's pretty much the, uh, the whole chapter there. All right. We covered last week points, am I correct, one, two, and then barely got to start on three? three. Three C? Okay, I got further than I thought we did. All right. The Man Born Blind episode demonstrates how one person's test can provide instruction to a multitude of individuals. And uh, you could say that this test was simply the Man Born Blind, and that would be uh, a tragic mistake because his parents were involved in the testing, They had to raise him, after all, to raise a blind child and bring him to adult status. And then uh, the friends and neighbors, the religious leaders, Jesus, his disciples, there are a lot of facets to this test. And that's what we get to highlight throughout this chapter. Instruction opportunity number one was the lesson that Jesus was able to teach his disciples. They were trying to find fault. And isn't that pretty well typical? We always try to, uh, we're either blaming somebody else or we're doing our best to find fault and then hopefully it's somebody else's fault when we get done with our investigation. Uh, whose, whose fault is it? Who sinned? This man or his parents that he would be born blind. Making the assumption that all infirmities, physical infirmities, sickness, uh, birth defects and so forth, things like that are, are consequences. They're divine discipline consequences. And that's a, that's a bad assumption to make because it ignores the idea of undeserved suffering. It ignores the concept of cursing by association and a lot of other doctrines as we understand it. This, uh, by the way, is the entire premise underlying the book of Job in that the three accusers show up with their assumption that somehow Job was uh, receiving discipline for his, uh, his uh, situation. Under point three then, there were a lot of sub-points there, but if you were either here or you weren't here, and if you weren't here, you can go get the uh, MP3 file off the website. Instruction opportunity two now goes to the man himself. And he's going to come back, by the way. He, uh, he also gets more instruction um, under number six. 
and even number seven. So he will come back again and learn more things. He will learn by watching others not learn, which in itself becomes instructive and is good for us to imitate if we observe uh, associates or family members and we observe mistakes they're making or blind spots where they refuse to learn. Uh, it, it's a good opportunity for us to do that. All right. Just picking up, before we even get to the man himself, you'll notice through this whole process, uh, he doesn't speak for some time. Uh, but he's sitting there and he's begging. We're told that he is the beggar from verse 8. Is this not uh, the one who used to sit here and beg? They had previously saw him as a beggar. And what does a beggar do? Well, he begs. We have the noun and the verb there in verse 8. But he doesn't speak until... Uh, they start doubting that it's really him. They say, well, no, it's, this is like him. <laughs> it's, it's his evil twin brother that just showed up, right? No, this is him. And he confesses that. So the first words out of his mouth are, I am the one, which is an interesting testimony. And then uh, he doesn't know the name. Uh, he does know the name in verse 11. That's what we're going to highlight, because where did he learn that name? The name Jesus that's introduced in verse 11 when he says the man who is called Jesus made clay. Well, where did he hear that name? Because you don't see it mentioned anywhere in the verses prior to that. So in the some points, we're kind of doing a little bit of deductive reasoning, some detective work here. We know from verse 2 that he heard the title rabbi. The man born blind heard the title rabbi. Now, if you're a man born blind, you've never seen your entire life, you don't know what anybody looks like, but you start to learn what people sound like, particularly if you've heard them multiple times, um, and particularly when there aren't really all that many rabbis around, all right, and the ones that are around uh, are trying to make a name for themselves, or they're trying to accumulate followers, they're lusting after respectful greetings in the marketplaces, and so forth. Uh, they're craving, they're building a name for themselves, and by and large, they're not taking time for the poor. They're not taking time for the beggars, they're not taking time, because again, the assumption is, well, they did something to deserve it, or the Lord is disciplining them, or disciplining their parents, or they're under a curse, and so forth. And uh, we, we find this time and time again where Jesus is paying attention to people that the Pharisees would never pay attention to. The scribes wouldn't even eat with them and uh, so forth. So in verse 2, we see that he heard the title rabbi. And then in verse 5, we observe that he is on hand to listen to the testimony as the light of the world. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. So these two bits of information is what he has to go on. The man born blind, so this is subpoint A, the man born blind heard the title rabbi, verse 2, and the testimony as the light of the world in verse 5. And on that basis, he actually uh, proceeds forward on a faith basis, and I find that to be noteworthy. The man's instruction opportunity was then an illustration of obedience. And so Jesus says these things, he spits on the ground, he makes clay, out of the spittle, and he applies the clay to the man's eyes. And he doesn't say a word. He just spits, he makes the clay, and he starts uh, he's smearing it on the guy's eyes. Doesn't say anything to him through this whole process. The man doesn't say anything to Jesus, at least nothing that's recorded here. And he said to him, go, wash in the pool of Siloam, which is translated sent. So he went away and washed. So there's nothing verbal. There's no statement of, well, who do you think you are? Why would I do that? What are you doing? 
get your hands off of me. <laughs> Things like that. All right. But this miracle actually forms a picture. And we gave this to you in the subpoints, and I hope you've taken time to think about it, that there is a mechanism that's put into place. The mechanism is the uh, clay to the eyes and the washing at the pool of Siloam. That's the mechanism. A mechanism was sovereignly designated. The, it was all sovereignty. It was all Jesus' decision. He decided uh, to do the clay. He decided what pool to go to. Everything was his sovereignty making those choices. So a mechanism was sovereignly designated and the procedure was volitionally obeyed. You know, if the man would have developed an attitude and said, forget that, I'm not walking all the way over there, then he would have remained blind. If he would have rubbed the clay off his eyes and said, what do you think you're doing? Quit touching me. He would have remained blind. And so we have an illustration here. We have an illustration that does not diminish glory, does not make this miracle any cheaper or lesser in any way, but it's, it highlights an aspect where God can function and God can work and yet leave it uh, unrealized until such time as the, the, procedure, the mechanism and the procedure is fulfilled. And that then becomes a, a matter for obedience. All right. And so we see it here. The miracle came into effect upon the volitional obedience to the sovereignly designated mechanism. And I've used this countless times. A lot of folks, uh, sometimes they, this helps to, for them to visualize the, uh, the nature of, of salvation, to visualize the nature of the gospel. Whereas the finished work of the Christ on the cross on Friday, April 3rd, 33 A.D. was complete, perfect, lacking in nothing. It was a total action done in its entirety to tell us that it is finished. And yet the work was finished on Friday, April 3rd, 33 A.D., but it didn't become effective in my life until one Saturday in September of 1973. And that's the closest I can pinpoint it. I don't know. I could probably find a calendar and figure out which days were the Saturdays, but I couldn't exactly spell out which Saturday it might have been. I just know it was at the dining room table um, and that it was a Saturday. But that's where it came into effect. Why? Because a mechanism was put into place. The mechanism is the, the uh, mandate for faith. Nothing meritorious about it. It's not deserving. It's not empowering. But it is the mechanism that was put into place. That by grace you were saved through faith. And uh, on Friday, the day before, it had not come into effect. But on Saturday, when faith was applied... It came into effect. So is this making sense? It kind of forms a picture. It shows how a mechanism can be designated with a procedure that must be obeyed. In fact, if the procedure is not obeyed, then no one ever gets saved. Believe. What must I do to be saved? Believe. And if you don't believe, then it's not happening. All right. So anyway, I just I enjoy this because you can look at this and say, oh, OK, that makes sense. Um so, you know, the, 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 the application of the clay, uh, you know, he makes the clay out of the spittle. The uh, application of the clay was entirely the work of Jesus. No one else could have done that or did do that. But it remained for the man to obey the procedure in order for the work to have its completed aspect. There's other illustrations as well. You can go to the Mosaic Law. You can show that the death of the animal was required. 
But it wasn't the end. The blood had to be applied. He had to take the after the animal died, he took the blood into the holy place and you sprinkled it before the veil. And it was the application of the blood that then completed the the process or the uh, provision there. The death was only step one. All right. So we had the issues there. Point C. The man does not question who the light of the world rabbi thinks he is. And that's quite a contrast because in the previous chapter we read in 853, Surely you're not greater than our father Abraham who died. The prophets died too. Whom do you make yourself out to be? That's the response of arrogance. That's the response of selfishness. That's the response of unbelief. Who do you, whom do you make yourself out to be? And if, he, if his was the attitude of the Pharisees, he would have said much the same thing. He put in that clay on my eyes. For who do you make yourself out to be? What kind of hocus pocus is this? What is, what is this going on? But he's not confrontational. He's not argumentative. He's not uh, difficult in any way. He obeys. Nor does he balk at the instructions he's been given. So let's go back to 2 Kings because not only is he a contrast to the Pharisees uh, just the day before in the temple, but he's a contrast with Naaman the Syrian from the Old Testament. 2 Kings 5, and and there's so many uh, parallels between these stories. It's one of the ways in which Elijah and Elisha are shadows foreshadowing Christ just in their ministries and their miracles, in uh, their messages and so forth, Elijah and Elisha, the two of them, combine to paint a uh, wonderful picture of Christ. But in Second Kings chapter 5, you have Naaman and his leprosy. And uh, I find this interesting because... Um, he has this uh, slave girl here, which I find, uh, you know, in, in, in spite of obviously the, the 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 terrible things that take place in terms of slavery and, and the capturing of, of prisoners in warfare in the ancient world. Uh, but we read in verse two, the Arameans had gone out in bands and had taken captive a little girl from the land of Israel. And she waited on Naaman's wife. So she becomes a house servant to the to uh, the, the military commander here. He's called a captain or different terms for it. Um, she becomes a servant for the captain's wife. and see, she, But she's a believer. And she knows truth. And she knows about the prophets of Israel and, and her blessings of being a Jewish person in her stewardship towards the Gentiles. And that uh, she actually begins to develop a, an attitude of love towards her slave owners, towards her master. And uh, that... Beyond the fact, of course, that she's a slave, she has an opportunity to be a steward and have a blessing as a Jewish person to Gentiles. So she says to her mistress, I wish that my master were with the prophet who's in Samaria. Then he would cure him of his leprosy. And uh, anyway, this is what happens here. Now, when he does get down there and he uh, seeks out the, uh, the prophet and has got some money to pay for this. He departed and took with him ten talents of silver and six thousand shekels of gold and ten chains of clothes. This is an absolute fortune. Elisha can retire on this for the rest of his days. And um, and I find this interesting. So we come down. I could spend the whole day on this one chapter. 
And uh, anyway, Naaman comes without reading the whole thing to you here. So verse 8, it happened when Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes, that he sent word to the king saying, why have you torn your clothes? Now let him uh, come to me and he shall know that there is a prophet in Israel. Of course, the king of Israel is not exactly a believer or a godly man in any, any extent. There were no good kings in the northern kingdom. Uh, but this Gentile is going to know that there is a prophet in Israel. This is a testimony. This is a part of the stewardship to the Gentile people. So Naaman came with his horses, his chariots, and stood at the doorway of the house of Elisha. So he's at the door. And he doesn't get an invitation to come in. <laughs> Elisha sent a messenger to him saying, Go and wash in the Jordan seven times. Your flesh will be restored to you and you'll be clean. But Naaman was furious. See, now this is the reaction. This is why it's such a contrast with the man born blind. Because the man born blind, he has the, the clay applied to his eyes. And Jesus says, all right, now go wash it off. And he tells him where to go and tells him how to wash it. He gives him procedures to follow. And the man born blind, in humility and obedience, goes and does what he's told to do. Naaman, however, gets furious. Uh, I think, you know, he's rather insulted that the prophet doesn't actually come outside. <laughs> or doesn't invite him inside, that he can't see any of the, you know, the abracadabra, uh, the ritual. You know, there's got to be some kind of ceremony, right? There's got to be a big uh, prayer to whatever God this prophet wants to pray to, and there's got to be some kind of uh, holy garments and probably a, uh, maybe a staff or a rod of some kind, and then maybe uh, uh, an incantation that's a chant maybe, some humming, you know. These are all the practices of the pagans. These are, these are what he's used to. This is what their, their demoniac wizards and magicians and those kind of guys would have done. So Naaman's kind of eager for this. He's traveled a fair distance for this. He's brought a fortune with him to pay for this. And now it's just like he's on the front porch and the servant comes out and says, Oh, it's you. Okay, here's all you got to do. Go down here to the Jordan River, wash seven times, and go home. You're, you're good. <laughs> well, <laughs> insulting. And, uh, and not up to the unbeliever's expectations. To me, not only is the man born blind a picture of salvation, I think this illustration here as well, a lot of unbelievers have a religious expectation for what it's going to take for them to um, get saved or for them to be okay with God or for them to have things taken care of and forgiven and so forth. And you proclaim a simple gospel by grace through faith and, well... That's, that's too easy. <laughs> that's insulting. You mean there's got to be more work than that? I've got to work for this. I've got to deserve this. Uh, and if, when you present salvation by grace through faith, that's insulting because, well, anyone could accept that. I want something hard. I want something that's special, something that I can work for, something that people that aren't as hardworking as me, maybe they can't measure up to it, but I can measure up to it because I'm good. I can work hard. But when you offer a free gift... That can be insulting towards someone that's really trying to convince themselves that they're all right. They can work for it. So Naaman was furious. And he went away and said, Behold, I thought he will surely come out to me and stand and call on the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the place and cure the leper. He, he's, he's eager for the ritual. He wants to see the, the pomp and the circumstance and all this other stuff. And instead, he's just hanging out on the front porch. The servant comes out and says, All right, here's all you got to go do. You know, it's kind of, you know, you, you make an appointment, you go and you want to see the doctor and instead you just, well, I don't have time for you. And so the physician's aide just kind of writes out a prescription and says, here, go take care of that. 
You think, well, wait a minute. I wanted to see the doctor, right? Do you ever get discouraged in that? Me, I'm, I'd be just as happy to go away and not come back. <laughs> so uh, I'd, I'd say, yeah, I didn't want to see the doctor anyway. Big deal, you know. Toss the prescription in the trash and go home. So uh, anyway, this is the attitude. And the attitude comes from anger based on pride and based on expectations of what religion's all about. People get really excited. Well, let's see what your God can do. And, and there may be folks that are so unsatisfied in their unbelieving life, what, uh, you know, the frantic inveterate search for happiness. We've taught that doctrine before. And their life is miserable, their life is horrible, and they get a little bug, you know, in their shorts, and they say, hey, I, I'm going to get religious. And they find a Christian they work with, and they say, can I go to church with you? And maybe if they get a little bit religious and become a good moral person and a churchgoer, maybe their life will get better. Is it, but is that faith? Is that repentance? Is that regeneration? Is that salvation? Not, nothing to do with any of that. And so uh, when you have those expectations of religiosity, you can get let down. And that's what's happening here. So uh, then he goes on. He says, are not Abana and Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, are they better than all the waters of Israel? <laughs> you know, why, why try to pay attention to the Bible and Christianity? You know. Could I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned and went away in a rage. Then his servants came near. Now, this is remarkable. His servants came near. And we don't know their names. We don't know how many or who they are. We don't know anything. But it's remarkable. The little slave girl back in Damascus, we don't, she, as far as we know, she didn't make the trip. She's still back in Damascus. She's not really his servant. She's his wife's handmaiden. Uh, wouldn't be traveling with him. She'd be back in the palace or wherever. Uh, but... Here's some servants with some divine viewpoint. And you wonder, how much fruit has this girl had? How many people did she lead to Christ before she had an opportunity with a shot there at naming himself? I think there's some blessing by association here that they had some divine viewpoint. So my father had the prophet told you to do some great thing. Would you not have done it? See, they know him. They know his personality. If, if, if he would have said, you know, climb to the top of Mount Olympus, and uh, fight a lion with your bare hands, you know, then he went, oh, yeah, I can do that. You know, and he'd gotten all proud of what he could have accomplished. Had the prophet told you to do some great thing, would you not have done it? How much more than when he says to you, wash and be clean? You know, you would have done a Herculean task. Why won't you do something that's as simple as this? Is it, it, and at that point, the only answer really is pride. It's your own pride won't let you do something that you think is too easy or too simple. And this is why I love the gospel. I love how simple the gospel is. I love how easy the gospel is. The fact that God made it available, if, if it was an impossible task or close to it, who could get saved? If it was medium difficult, who could get saved? If it's easy, you see the point. So um, that's what we have here. How much more then when he says to you, wash and be clean. So he went down and dipped himself seven times in the Jordan, according to the word of the man of God, and his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. All right, so there you go. That's the answer. Think about the billions of dollars American uh, Americans spend every year on skin care products and trying to restore a youthful appearance to... Uh, like the flesh of a little child. How about that? If we could market that, we'd make some bucks. We could finance this church project. 
All right. And you know what I find interesting here, too, is that it says he went and he did it. And he did it because the servants had recommended it. We don't know that he did it in faith. I think that, I think he did it apart from faith. He just did it in a, in a doubtful obedience. And uh, so, you know, miracles aren't dependent on the faith of the one who thinks the miracle is going to work. He's just obeying the prophet. The miracle was done by the prophet. Anyway, it's an interesting picture right there. Okay, so now there's a, there's a contrast. There's Naaman, and there's the man born blind. Let me get back to John chapter 9 now. Point D. I'm going to give him a name. I'm going to call him Anablepsis. After receiving his sight, Anablepsis returned. Since, since John chapter 9 doesn't tell us his name, I gave him a name. His name is Anablepsis. Anna to his friends. A-N-A-B-L-E-P-S-A-S, anablepsis. It's a participle meaning um, the one who received his sight. All right. After receiving his sight, anablepsis returned to find the light of the world rabbi had departed. Now, it's interesting because this is where there's a similarity with Naaman and, and anablepsis. Because after the miracle at the Jordan River, he does return. He returns with thanksgiving, he returns with joy, he returns with a recognition that, the, that Yahweh, the God of Israel, is indeed a God of power and great work. And uh, so he has a response. Here, too, this man has a response. Um, Naaman. Ooh, ooh. Ah. This was uh, the dead battery I changed before the message started. It's getting hot. Why would I do that? Sitting in my pocket, getting hot. Whew. All right. Thank you, Lord. I might set the bench on fire. I don't know what we're going to do. Crazy. If it blows up, then... Uh, oh, well. <laughs> 3,300 Bible classes. That's never happened before. What a... <laughs> There's something painful going on in my pocket. What's going on? All right. Point D, after receiving his sight, Anablepsis returned to find that the light of the world rabbi had departed. Naaman goes back and he wants to offer rewards and treasure. And uh, Elisha wants no part of it. And then there's a continuation of the story there where Gehazi, the servant, gets greedy. Uh, but here, the man born blind comes back and, and Jesus is gone. Jesus is gone. And it provides for an opportunity for a testimony. And that's what happens here. Now... Look at this, and you'll see some um, some things here. Because now all of a sudden, he knows a whole lot more than he knew before he washed, right? He knew that the man was called a rabbi. He knew that he claimed to be the light of the world. But now this miracle is done. His eyes are open. He can see. And now all these things are coming into uh, into the light for him. First of all, he knows that the light of the world rabbi was a prophet, these miraculous healings could only be done by prophets of Yahweh. John 9:17. Now this is a little bit further down in the context here, but still it's it's a part of his thinking. What do you say about him since he opened your eyes and he said he's a prophet? You know, he opened my eyes. He did a miracle. He's a prophet. What do you, what did you guys ever do for me? Right? 
We'll talk about his confrontation here with the Pharisees in a moment because uh, they refused to accept the fact that this really happened. And the man's like, uh, hello, it's me, it happened. You guys didn't do a thing for me, but he sure did. He's a prophet. So he's putting these things together. He knows that he was a rabbi. He heard the light of the world message, and I think he heard it more than once. I believe he heard it there, and he was also on hand to hear it back in the temple. He knew that the light of the world rabbi was a prophet. Israel has not had a prophet for 400 years, not since Malachi. And now all of a sudden, prophets start to appear again. The forerunner starts baptizing people. Where? At that River Jordan. Okay. And uh, now here's Jesus, and uh, miracles are being done. This is, this is new stuff. So he understands the role as a prophet. He also knew that his name was Jesus. And to me, that's the most significant past verse here in this whole stretch. From verse 11. The man who is called Jesus made clay and anointed my eyes and said to me, Go to Siloam and wash. So I went away and washed and I received sight. He knew that the prophet's personal name was Jesus. And in order to know that, he had to put together information from not just this chapter, but previous information of things he'd heard in the past in order for it to all connect and come together right here, right now. Because nowhere in this chapter, from verse 1 to verse 10, does the name Jesus appear. And yet, in verse 11, he answered, The man who is called Jesus, the rabbi claiming to be the light of the world. And how did this blind guy know that the light of the world rabbi prophet was named Jesus? I believe it's because he had heard the Lord's message during the feast. Anablepsis undoubtedly heard the Lord's message during the feast. Remember that light of the world message was not unique to chapter 9. It was a central feature of the public message in chapter 8. Anablepsis undoubtedly heard the Lord's message during the feast, John 8:12, Either at that feast in Jerusalem or on a previous occasion, but given that he used to sit here and beg, uh, it's not like he was a, a traveler. It's not like uh, this man born blind... Uh, uh, made the circuit around the Galilean villages and ministry and so forth. Undoubtedly, he was a Jerusalem native. All of the associates here were Jerusalem. The neighbors that knew him were from Jerusalem. And being born blind and a beggar, he, he's, not, uh, he's not the traveling sort. Jesus has not been in Jerusalem for a while. He skipped the previous Passover. It's been uh, a while since he's been in town. And so... The connection between Lot of the World and Jesus had to have been made in chapter 8, where uh, we read last week, or not last week, but in the last episode, um, at the midpoint of the feast when he couldn't, uh, well, chapter 7 was the midpoint of the feast when he couldn't resist anymore, he started teaching, and then the continuation of that, um, Jesus again spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world, he who follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And that sparked a lot of Pharisee opposition. But evidently, that beggar sitting there, that blind beggar sitting there, was paying attention. Didn't have a chance to get questions answered. Never had an opportunity for a follow-up. Never uh, had the uh, opportunity to, uh, to learn more, to get saved. But he heard the message. And it was able to put two plus two together here in this chapter and came up with four. 
So he's putting things together. And this is where we can be uh, relaxed in our own evangelism and our own uh, planting of seeds, knowing that we might be planting. Somebody else may come along and water something. Somebody else may water some more. It might be the third, the fourth, the fifth, the hundred and fifth person actually that reaps the harvest as all these other processes go into it. And then it all starts to make sense. Oh, yeah, that's what somebody was talking about. It never made sense to me before. But now this little piece of the puzzle comes along. And then all, of course, through the whole uh, deal there comes the, uh, the convicting ministry of the Holy Spirit, the drawing ministry of the Father, all of the common grace that uh, prepares the, uh, that heart for uh, salvation. All right, so we have our character here on Oblepsis. Instruction opportunity number three, his neighbors and associates. His neighbors and associates, verses 8 through 12. They get to learn some things. So, uh, instruction op- this point four, instruction opportunity number three, his neighbors and associates. Therefore, the neighbors and those who previously saw him as a beggar were saying, is this not the one who used to sit and beg? Others were saying, this is he. Still others were saying, no, but he is like him. And he kept saying, I am the one, right? You ever uh, run into somebody that you know reminds you of somebody else? <laughs> you think, is that? No, that can't be. Yeah, it is. No, it can't be. Yeah, I think it is. So you go up and you ask him. Nope, that's not them. I'm sorry. <laughs> All right. That's kind of what they got going on here. But it can't be him. Look at him. He's walking around. His eyes are open. He can see what's going on. That can't be him. And he kept saying, I am the one. So they were saying to him, how then were your eyes open? And he answered, the man who is called Jesus. And he's able to testify. And it's interesting is, is uh, a brand new believer just got saved this morning. He, he doesn't have a doctrine. He can't teach Bible class. But what can he do? He can lead somebody else to Christ. Can he not? If you were saved this morning and someone made the gospel clear to you, can you testify this afternoon? Just based on what was told to you? That's the beauty of it. So, um, the man who is called Jesus made clay and anointed my eyes and said to me, Go to Siloam and wash. So I went away and washed, and I received sight. And they said to him, Well, where is he? He said, I do not know. So they have a learning opportunity here. And uh, some elements under this. I find it interesting, and we'll talk about the steps along the way. Um, is this man saved yet? His eyes are open. But is anablepsis saved yet? Those are his physical eyes. We'll, uh, we'll look down a little bit deeper here. Uh, first of all, the neighbors and others weren't quite sure he was who they thought he was. They weren't quite sure. <laughs> a lot of times... Uh, Folks get saved and friends and associates and so forth, they'll just, they, they have a lot of skepticism. Like, okay, well, we'll see if this sticks, right? I think a lot of, uh, when Gary got saved, Gary Williams got saved, you know, a lot of his old friends and coworkers and stuff, they were like, well, all right. He's getting religious. That won't last, you know. And just think, okay, it's another phase. It's something else, you know. But And then... It's interesting, though, is that over time, you start to say, hmm, there, there really is something to this. There's some reality there. 
he's not the same guy that he used to be. What's going on? And uh, the, it may be that it's not the immediate testimony that bears fruit, but the long haul that bears fruit. When all of a sudden, over a length of time, uh, observers recognize, you know what? This isn't just a, a flight of fancy. It's not just a random thing. It's not just a phase or a craze or some kind of thing. It's somebody's midlife crisis somebody's going through. There's, there's a reality that's happening here. So the neighbors and others weren't quite sure. They don't know what to think. Secondly, um, and I think this is the essence of youthful evangelism, the benefit he received became the testimony he had to offer. The benefit he received became the testimony he had to offer. His story is not, oh, Jesus walked on water. Oh, Jesus multiplied the loaves. Oh, Jesus cast out a demon. Oh, Jesus. None of that. His, he had one message, and that was the benefit he received. He put clay on my eyes, and now I see. And that's as simple as it is. The benefit he received. And, um, you know, the, the same thing. Some, a brand new believer just saved this morning. Does he have a, a wealth of doctrine? Could he outline, uh, you know, 12 steps of, uh, of, of uh, angelic conflict or, or any, any doctrine? Well, I can't do any of that. But he can say, you know what? Uh, my sins are forgiven. I have eternal life. I'm going to heaven. I'm a believer in Jesus Christ. And so the benefit he received became the testimony he had to offer. And that's, that's true for every single one of us. And whatever it is that you uh, rejoice over, um, and, and obviously there's a huge massive package of things, but initially there's normally an item or a couple of items or something um, I've known folks that were uh, the biggest thing to them was the sense of relief that they weren't going to go to hell. And that was the biggest sense of relief. Man, I'm not going to go to hell. I'm going to go to heaven. And that that was special to them. It touched them. It, it, it gave comfort to the soul. And that's the first thing they told to others. Maybe the, the thing that gripped them was the sense that, man, my sins are forgiven. And the, the eternal destiny wasn't nearly front and stage, but in their thinking, what was center stage in their thinking was, my sins are forgiven. Man, my sins are forgiven. And maybe because they'd had this guilt or baggage about things they'd done, and now all of a sudden that's gone. Whatever it is that's front and center, front and center stage. Uh, ultimately, of course, they're all true. Yes, your sins are forgiven. Yes, you're going to go to heaven. No, you're not going to go to hell. Yes, you have eternal life. Yes, you have a spiritual gift. There's 68 things that happen there. But... That's 68 different things that could go front and center as far as the stage is concerned, as far as you're concerned when you're looking at this panorama of grace blessings that, that uh, the Father provides for us. For this man, the benefit he received, you know what? He put clay on my eyes and said, go wash. I washed and received sight. That's his testimony. That's the benefit he received. That's what he has to offer. Now, Anybody he's talking here to, do they need their eyes open? Do they need spittle and clay? And they need, No, they don't need any of that. They're physically, they can see. But based on his testimony, they now have a person to go investigate. That becomes uh, the issue here. Thirdly, the testimony should also include guidance as to where the Lord can be found. The testimony should also include guidance as to where the Lord can be found. Where did you find eternal life? 
You need to point the way to Jesus Christ, for there's no other name given under heaven by which we must be saved. It's horrible to uh, this, this pluralism we live with in our in our generation is just insane for somebody to say, oh, this is great. I've got peace. I've got rest in my soul. I've got all this stuff. And I found it through the Bible. Um, I hope you find something either in Buddhism or Hinduism or the Bible or New Age or whatever you do. You know, the Bible worked for me, but maybe, you know, something else might work for you. What? No. What is the only provision? That's where you take this lost and dying world. It's, uh, who was it that said it's, it's, uh, it's one poor beggar telling another poor beggar where to find food? Yeah. I like that. I don't know who originally developed that, but he gets quoted a lot. <laughs> and that's what it's about. Remember, at this point, the man's only benefit is in terms of physical health. I believe he's still an unbeliever. In John 9:38, um, we have a faith application. He said in later on, he said, "Lord, I believe," and he worshipped him. I believe, and he worshipped him. Now, it's the only reason why it's a little bit fuzzy, of course, is the circumstances involved in. Old Testament salvation coming face to face with the expected coming one. That's that's the only point where there's reason to to wonder if uh, if he was not already regenerate prior to this episode. Um, but we do clearly see later on when he has a chance to find out who is this Son of Man and uh, who is he Lord. We read about in verses 35 and following. Um, see the miracle itself isn't the point. The miracle is the evidence of the divine commission so that you know here's a true prophet. Here is someone with a message from the throne of God in heaven. Then you can you have the recognition of the legitimate message and you better pay attention to the message. So he finds Jesus again here or Jesus finds him and he's got an opportunity to follow up with the message. Do you believe in the Son of Man? And he answered, Who is he, Lord, that I may believe in him? And it's interesting, it's the Son of Man taught, not Son of David, not Christ, not Messiah, but Son of Man. Who is He, Lord? You have both seen Him, and He is the one who is talking with you. Lord, I believe, and He worshipped Him. Belief in Christ, worshipping Christ as the God-man, and there it is. So Jesus said, For judgment I came into this world, so that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. And of course, there He's playing on the two aspects of vision, physical sight and uh, and earthly sight. All right, instruction opportunity number four is the Pharisees. So point five in your outline. Instruction opportunity number four. And sadly, this is the one where the lesson doesn't come across. <laughs> it's an opportunity not redeemed. So whose fault is that? Is it the fault of the message? Is it the fault of the messenger? No, the teaching is profitable and the teacher is perfect. It's the students here who are not humble to receive the word implanted. Can't stress enough how humility is a prerequisite for learning. So they brought to the Pharisees the man who was formerly blind. And it's interesting. They say, well, where is he? I don't know. And since they can't go to Jesus, what they do is they take on a to the Pharisees. Because you know where they can be found. Where are they going to be found? 
Yeah, in the places of prominence, in their normal teaching spots, in their in their in their place where you can come to them, since they uh, they would not come to you, kind of thing. So they know where to find them, and so they take them there. Now, wouldn't you know it? It was the Sabbath on the day when Jesus made the clay and opened his eyes. You know, he just has the worst luck. Jesus, I mean, think about the timing. He's I, every time he turns around, he's doing a miracle, and oh, I forgot it's the Sabbath. Goodness gracious! <laughs> I'm teasing. All right. But this happens so many times, you start to wonder, did he do any miracles Sunday through Friday, or did he just kind of save them all up for Saturday? I think he did them daily and uh, didn't get worked up about whether it was the Sabbath or not because it's not work. It's not, it's not a Sabbath violation. In fact, it's the most ideal day to do the works of God. That's what the day is, the day is designed to do the works of God, that you set aside your secular career and you set aside your industry and your... Uh, bread winning and, and all the rest of that. So a miracle is perfectly suited for Sabbath uh, activity. All right, so it was the Sabbath on the day when Jesus made the clay and opened his eyes. So since obviously Jesus is involved in uh, clay manufacturing uh, industry, <laughs> right? Is he involved in clay manufacturing industry? Is that his, uh, is he working on this day and violating the Sabbath as a uh, clay manufacturer? No. So the Pharisees also were asking him again how he received his sight. So they ask again, meaning that they have the full report. They have the testimony from the friends and the neighbors, but they want it straight from him. They want to confirm it from the uh, from the witness. And he said to them, well, he applied clay to my eyes. I washed and I see. So therefore, some of the Pharisees were saying, praise the Lord. A miracle has been done. No, they don't say anything like that. They say, Sabbath breaker, he made clay on the Sabbath. Ooh, what a wicked, evil thing to do. But others kept saying, how can a man who is a sinner perform such signs? That boggled them. Because they, they, they're in total agreement. Yeah, this guy's a heretic. He's a sinner. He's a horrible Sabbath breaker. Why does he have these powers? How can he do these miracles? Since he's such an obvious sinner. And so they're arguing. And notice no one... Um, is taking the side that uh, he's not a sinner. There's two sides to this debate. And both sides are in agreement that, they're, that he's a sinner. It's just the question is, well, how is he doing these miracles then? How, is, how can a man who is a sinner perform such signs? And so there's division among them. So they said to the blind man again, change your story. <laughs> if you ask enough times, maybe you'll get a different answer or one that you really want. So if you don't like the answer you get, just keep asking, keep asking, keep asking, and maybe you'll wear them down and you finally get the answer you want. See, children try this with their parents. You know, ask again and again and again and again, and finally maybe they'll just say, okay, fine, go ahead. Or you switch parents, you know, go to the other one. Go to the one that you think might, you know. Of course, you don't tell them, oh, by the way, I already asked mom, and she said no. You know, you, you just act like, oh, there's a brand new question just out of the blue. Dad, can I do such a thing? Oh, yeah, that's fine. Until dad finds out that mom had already said no. And then, uh-oh. Okay. Any illustrations, of course, are purely coincidental. They have no bearing on the Bolander family or anybody else I personally know. These are actually memories from my childhood. <laughs> okay. So what do you say about him? See, he opened your eyes. He said he's a prophet. That can't be right. All right, so this is their learning opportunity. And they don't like the answers they get. And when they don't like the answers they get, they go and they drag his parents into it. 
And uh, we'll see them next in verses 18 through 23. And then they bring the man back again in verse 24. They called the man who had been blind and said to him, Give glory to God. We know this man is a sinner. And he's like, you know, why do you keep asking me this? I told you already. And you do not listen. Down to verse 27. This is it. This is it. It's kind of like uh, folks that you've given the gospel before. And you give them the gospel again. It's the same gospel. You give them a gospel a third time. Same gospel. You say, this gospel isn't changing. <laughs> you want to hear it again? You're not listening. This is how you receive eternal life. All right, this is their learning opportunity. Now, interesting here. Some of the Pharisees are handicapped by their theology. Some of the Pharisees are handicapped by their theology. To them, Jesus was a Sabbath breaker. And this was a blind spot they could not get over. Some of the Pharisees are handicapped by their theology. <laughs> they have no doubt in their mind. They're, they're trying to find answers, but they have, they have a presupposition that's just a given and they cannot escape it. It becomes their absolute. And so because that's an absolute, everything else has to revolve around that. To the point where they even adopt some forms of insanity just because it, that's the only way to keep consistent with their logic. To them, Jesus was a Sabbath breaker. This is like um, evangelizing a, a Roman Catholic. <laughs> you realize that right off the bat, they're, they're harder than just a total pagan unbeliever. Because they've got a blindness enforced by their theology. In their mind, they don't need to be saved. They're already saved. They're in the church. And there is no salvation outside of the Roman Catholic Church. And so when an outsider, that's us, a non-Roman, starts telling them about their need for salvation, they say, well, wait a minute. We're the saved ones. We're in the church. You guys are the Protestant heretics that are, uh, you know, anathema apart from the grace that's in Mary through the Roman Catholic Church. It, it's like, uh, you know, <laughs> to them it's, it's the opposite of, of how the universe normally rotates. Because they're the ones that are in. Theology hampering their uh, comprehension of a message. So, uh, <laughs> it be like selling uh, ice cream in the North Pole or something, right? They talk about the pinnacle, the best salesmen on earth are the ones that could sell uh, ice cubes to Eskimos. Well, you think, well, what do I need your product for? I already got it. All right. And so here we see their blindness. The, um, to them, Jesus was a Sabbath record. They can't, get, they can't get past that. Others accepted the testimony of the sign. It's indisputable, yet they can't reconcile it. How can they both be true? He, he is a Sabbath breaker. I think the first group rejected that the sign even took place. That's why they kept working hard to disprove that there was a miracle. Because that way they could continue to cling to their, to their acceptance of Jesus as a false teacher, a false prophet, a, a sinner, and so forth. 
Others, though, accepted the testimony of the son. And so they're now left with two things and they can't reconcile. He's a sinner. He's doing signs and, and they're just throwing their hands up. How can this be true? They're stumped. They're trapped in this in this uh, because of this assumption, which has to be true. And this one that they can't deny, they're left without answers. And so uh, there's a lot of things that uh, there's, there's a lot of parallels even in our approach. I think, um, again, back to the Roman Catholic allegiance or other theologies where, uh, you know, hey, this is this is it. Louis Bear Schaefer wrote this in his systematic theology, so that's got to be it. And yet. The Bible seems to be saying this. Oh, the Bible can't be saying that because Schaefer said this. Well, wait a minute. Have we just elevated Schaefer above the Word of God? If, if you're convinced that this is what the Word of God is, then that's what you're accountable for. You're not going to stand before Schaefer at the judgment seat of, you know, we don't stand at the judgment seat of Schaefer. We stand at the judgment seat of Christ. And so we say, hey, uh, you know what? I think, uh, I think he missed the target on this. Or uh, RB theme. Miss the target on this. I have to answer to what the scriptures say, or Calvin, or Luther, or whoever. Say, so, you know what? This is a human being subject to, to subject to uh, some fallible approaches. All right. So both of these groups, and they're they're struggling to reconcile issues. Point C. As the only eyewitness available. The man born blind was asked to evaluate the sinning Sabbath breaker. There's only one guy that can ask. There's only one guy that can testify to this. As the only eyewitness available. Now think about that. For legal proof and the putting to death of a murderer, a single witness was, uh, was not admissible. A single, a single witness couldn't prove anything. A single witness couldn't disprove anything. A single witness could testify, but couldn't prove. Remember, under the law, it took two or three uh, that every fact may be confirmed. And I find this interesting. And he's going to have an answer for them, and his answer is going to reflect a, uh, an incomplete and finite understanding. He is a prophet. His answer shows the incomplete and finite understanding of one who is still being brought to faith. He knows him at this point as a prophet. He is not yet brought to the point where he knows that he is the Son of Man, Redeemer of mankind, the, the Lord God of the universe, worthy of worship. That comes in verse 38. But here in verse 17, he still has an incomplete and finite understanding. He is being brought. He's in the process of being brought to faith. He's being asked, being brought to faith. All right, instruction opportunity five is his parents, and they're just terrified. Uh, number six is the man born blind again when he comes back in verses 24 through 34. And there's actually going to be some angelic conflict manipulation going on here. And that's going to have to take some more time that we'll deal with next week. And then point eight, we'll look at instruction opportunity number seven in the rebuke on the blindness for these Pharisees uh, when they say, we're not blind too, are we? 
Why do you ask? Something bugging you? <laughs> Why do you ask? What makes you ask that? Well, something maybe in your conscience going on there? What, you know, here they are in their misery. And here's this blind guy rejoicing. <laughs> We're not blind too, are we? If you were blind, you would have no sin. But since you say we see, your sin remains. They're more blind than that the man ever was. And even worse, because theirs is a spiritual blindness. And uh, he had actually a positive and a hunger for the things of the Lord when it became available to him. So next week we'll come back and we'll uh, get through points uh, 6, 7, and 8. And that should get us down to the end of the chapter. Thank you, Father. Thank you for this day. Thank you for the truth of your word. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.